This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, hello. It's so great to have your company for the Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff, back from a couple of weeks off. Thank you to Brooke Nindorf for filling in while I was away, having a little bit of a summer holiday. Coming up, I'll have information on a state government's plan to boost locally produced building products in public housing. And seaweed seems to be the miracle cure for all things carbon these days. And we'll often talk about it in relation to methane abatement in cattle. Could it also provide carbon credits uh, as well as a carbon sink as well? We know it's a short-term carbon store. They've been there for many thousands of years, so they're doing a very good job at cycling carbon in the coastal ocean already. Um, Whether that's a carbon credit is a different question. I'll have more on that in the next half hour or so. But first up, uh, we're going to look at at carbon and... um, it was uh, f- the first the, – there was the Chubb review into the carbon credit system that put a stop to uh, avoid deforestation projects in New South Wales and uh, that added rules for human-induced regeneration projects as well and created a new integrity system to – or in committee, I should say, to audit the system. So that was the Chubb review. And then there was this second one that came through that beefed up the safeguard mechanism that raises the bar for the uh, country's major polluters to cut emissions, which triggered greater demand for carbon credits. So there's a lot happening in this carbon market space. So David Clawson caught up with carbon market analyst Brett Harper from Reputex to look at uh, what people think about these changes. Well, I think in both instances, it's really increased the certainty for the carbon market. It's uh, reinforced that the existing uh, methodologies for creating the carbon offsets is fairly robust. I'm fairly impressed that the government has managed to kind of thread the policy needle and and design uh, some a really good scheme that I don't think should attract too many uh, legitimate complaints. In general, it's it's quite fair and transparent. And then they've also clarified what the liability is going to be for the largest emitters and given them an emissions reduction trajectory going forward. So now they can, with more certainty, calculate what type of offsets they may need to uh, align with that trajectory. And in terms of the the carbon market, what how did it respond in terms of the price? Uh, I think things have been up a little bit, which is not, we're no giant moves yet. Uh, and, it's and, still going to take a little while for the big compliance entities to work out how many credits they're going to need and then to find uh, sellers at, at the right price to, to procure those. Mm. And so they did make some changes. There were some methodologies in the farm sector which they just decided they wouldn't continue anymore. Is that significant, do you think? Uh, not as significant as you might think. Those were older methodologies that were going to be phased out anyway, based on a baseline of 2010 with a 15-year crediting period. So that would have already come off over the next couple of years anyway by 2025. And tighter rules for some of those uh, regenerative projects where they're trying to store more carbon in the soil, does that going to have an impact too? Uh, again, not a huge impact. I think 
the larger impact will probably be for the landfills. They are going to have a, a baseline that adjusts along the way to better credit them more accurately instead of just assuming that they get credit for everything. There still seems to be some big question marks. We spoke to Professor Richard Eckhart, who's quite well known in, the, in that space. He seemed to think that farmers would be better off not selling their credits at all because, A, things might change if we get back into a drought cycle and, and the ability of the soil to hold carbon will diminish rapidly, and, B, they're going to need their carbon credits to get to net zero themselves in order to uh, be able to sell into certain markets that require that or certain supply chains. Do they really need to hang on to their credits, do you reckon, instead of selling them? I mean, it's probably good advice to to consider the long term and whether or not it's you know best value to sell those credits to someone else now or to retain those for your own use going forward. Obviously, farmers would be very familiar with with drought cycles and would need to plan for the fact that a lack of rainfall does have some correspondence to how much carbon is being stored. Um, so there is some risk there. Many of them run livestock operations, which can have its own emissions, um, but much of that can be offset by growing vegetation. Uh, so if you're looking to be a carbon neutral cattle operation, you may not want to sell off all of your uh, soil carbon and vegetation credits and then be left not being able to reduce your own cattle emissions. What about the market? If you were just playing the market, you know, we have seen it at almost double where it is now, not that long ago. Is it likely to continue going up? Would farmers be better off holding on to their credits now with a view to selling later? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we expect the prices to go up. Uh, demand for the credits is what's driving that. As demand goes up, uh, the price will go up. Uh, it's not to say there won't be fluctuations along the way as things balance out, but generally we expect prices to go up. And looking at the mining sector or the big polluters, the energy sector, even big companies like Manildra or uh, Insitec Pivot, you know, the fertiliser manufacturer, which uses a lot of energy to do that. What do you think the ramping up of requirements for them uh, will do for their bottom line, for the econ economics of their businesses? Well, it's going to depend on, on specific circumstances at each facility. But generally, a lot of these companies have their own emissions reduction plans or net zero targets at some point in the future. Um, so if they don't yet have those plans in place, they should certainly see to that now and figure out uh, what their strategy is going to be to reduce or abate emissions going forward. That might not happen immediately, like in the first couple of years, uh, where offsets might be needed. But over the longer term, it's going to make a lot of sense to reduce your emissions and, and make the appropriate investments along the way to do that. Carbon market analyst Brett Harper from Reputex speaking with David Clawton. While we're talking about carbon, the jury is still out on whether seaweed can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it long enough to earn valuable carbon credits the way trees do. We know that uh, um, there are seaweeds that can be carbon sinks, but uh, an independent review of the federal government's carbon credit scheme has called for more transparency around this area of research and the, the data that's coming out. Professor Katrina Hurd and her team at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies in Hobart are trying to do just that with seaweeds, but as Fiona Breen found out, there's a long way to go. In order to demonstrate that seaweeds can sequester carbon, you have to be able to measure the amount of carbon dioxide that is removed from the atmosphere and then how much of it is stored long-term. So the long-term storage, we say, is over 100 years, and that has to be in an, a form that is unreactive 
and then won't return to the atmosphere. Have you developed a way to actually measure the, the or you're looking at a framework? No, we, we have a framework a which ha must, probably has about 20 different components that need to be measured in order to demonstrate that seaweeds would are sequestering carbon and to be able to start to put numbers on that. So there's no numbers on these different parts of the framework yet. They're, they're just there. And so some things we know quite well. For example, we know the rates of seaweed photosynthesis. We know how much seaweed is in a seaweed bed. We know how much carbon is in that. So we have numbers around that. Things we don't have numbers around are how much of that seaweed carbon ends up in sediments or ends up locked away in a form that is a long-term, 100-year storage. What we do in the framework is we start off by comparing seaweeds to trees. So in, on terrest in terrestrial environments, we know that trees take up carbon dioxide, they store it as wood, which can be stored for long-term, maybe 100 years or more, and also it's stored as soil. So soil is the biggest, by far the biggest carbon store we've got on the planet Earth. Seaweeds we also call forests and people think that perhaps they might sequester carbon in the same way that trees do. But seaweeds are really different because they have a very fast turnover time. So they, their lifespan is, only a, is like maximum 10 years. Most cases it's only one to two years. So they're not really storing carbon like trees on a long-term basis. Because trees really in this new era are quite valuable in terms of carbon credit schemes, etc. They're earning money. Yeah, so, yes, so trees do sequester carbon because, and they store it as living biomass. If, For example, if they live to be 100 years or more, some trees are 1,000 years old. But, and they particularly store it as soil. So that we know that trees can be used for carbon credits and we know and re it's relatively easy to quantify. Well, I know that uh, various aquaculture farms are sort of trialling, growing seaweeds, uh, perhaps to offset some things in, in their industry, but also as carbon sequestration. Is that happening around the place? There's a lot of work, there's a lot of interest in doing that. However, because they've got very short lifespans, that carbon isn't tied up for very long. And if it's an aquaculture, it's only tied up for a few months before they're harvested. So in aquaculture situations, it's very difficult to demonstrate that that carbon, it's got to be locked up for a long time. So there may be applications. So for example, you could use seaweed, for example, to replace oil for plastics. And in that way, you're sort of using seaweeds and not using oil. So that is some form of sequestration, but to be, it's probably quite small. Uh, very small, actually, compared to what we need to do to remove it from the atmosphere. So do you think that maybe seaweed, even though you're looking at this framework, might not be as uh, good as forests, for example? Uh, so from my knowledge at the moment, I, they're probably not as good as forests and at sequestering carbon just because of the very fast life cycles. However, what we have to be able to do is to track where the seaweed's going to. So when it gets ripped off the rocks, where does it end up? Some of it ends up back in the terrestrial environment. It gets washed up on the shore. Some of it may end up in the deep ocean and in the sediments, and that's what people are trying to quantify now to see if that is a possible storage for, for seaweeds. But we are some ways away from being able to understand this correctly. And is part of this sort of framework that you're developing, is that about making it transparent and accountable and sort of ticking boxes so we know that you know, if a claim is made, it is actually true? Well, absolutely. So if we want to allocate carbon credits to anything, it's got to be verifiable. And it, we've got to have integrity around the numbers. And to do this is actually a lot of work because it isn't just measuring 
you know, how much seaweed's there, you've got to find out where it goes and how much is that seaweed growth resulting in the drawdown of atmospheric carbon dioxide into seawater? And is that then going to be locked up for more than 100 years? And you have to be able to know all these numbers to be able to, to put a number on a credit. And at the moment, we don't have those numbers. Because credits are valuable. You can actually earn money from yeah, the government. Absolutely, you can earn money for that. And whether or not a seaweed bed is, you know, we know it's a short-term carbon store. It, they've been there for many thousands of years, so they're doing a very good job at cycling carbon in the coastal ocean already. Um, whether that's a carbon credit is a different question. Professor Katrina Hurd chatting with Fiona Breen at the International Temperate Reefs Symposium in Hobart. It is 17 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency emergency broadcaster. broadcaster. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. I'll have weather up next, but in the meantime, in a bid to bolster the wool workforce, uh, the Harville um, and the Insheds training institutes like TAFE are offering a fee-free wool classing course. Australian Wool Exchange Wool Classing Register Fiona Rawley hopes the initiative is going to attract more people to the industry, which is battling a skills shortage. I know a lot of people struggled to even get shearers through spring with uh, some issues there as well with rain. But this is focusing on wool classing, and Ms Rawley is speaking here to Cara Jeffrey about the course and uh, what wool classing is like as a career. The course is a Cert 4. So a Cert 4 does have a certain um, time frame that's set down by government. People can come with prior knowledge and that prior knowledge obviously holds them in good stead. So that would mean that they would be able to um, move through the, the um, course requirements more quickly. Um, so possibly between 6 to 12 months for those sort of people. And then other people, you know, it may take as long as two years if they haven't had any previous experience. So, you know, it is flexible in that respect, but it is a Cert 4. So it, it, it's not a lightweight course. And so in terms of attendance and uh, work placement, is it, do you have to go every day to learn it or is it a few hours a week? How, do, how is it mostly structured, the course? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about wool classing is that it varies um, nationally depending on, you know, the, the location. So, like, in a closely built-up area, you've got a TAFE college that delivers wool classing maybe every 100 kilometres. So, in that case, you might attend, a, you know, one night a week or a full Saturday, you know, a fortnight or a month. And then other situations, some training providers might have a lot of the theory that's done remotely and then they come and give in have industry visits to finish those assessments and see those practical skills in shed. So it it really is a a flexible delivery. The best thing is to to find the one that suits you. Working in a wool shed, it's not exactly an air-conditioned workplace. So I guess what type of people does a career as a wool class suit? Yeah, interesting. I've actually just come from an air-conditioned shed, but I must admit it's the first one I've ever been in. So (laughs) times are a-changing. Um, you do have to be physically fit, certainly. Um, 
I have some manual skills because it is, you know, there is work that needs to be done. There's no getting away from that. So a certain level of fitness. An interest in, in, in rural rural and agricultural environment obviously is helpful too. But I think it really suits someone who has strong leadership interest and also technical interest. It is, at the end of the day, a technical product that meets the processor's needs. And part of the world-classing requirements is that you lead the team, that you show by example and you problem-solve. So those really good analytical skills as well. Like any job, the appeal also is if it pays well. So once a person ah. is qualified as a wool class, is it a good paying job in, in the agricultural industry? It certainly is. Um, you know, I think supply and demand has meant that, you know, classes are nearly in a position where they can name their price. Um, but I always say that, you know, a, a good wool class is value for money, but they also need to be, you know, valued. So it's a, it's a two-way street here. Uh, the award, you know, the the pay rate is, is set down in the award. It's a, it's a, it's a daily rate. Um, but certainly classes at the moment are asking above the award, which is quite okay. And um, it is very good money. And if you think of a young person coming out of school, um, it really is competitive with a lot of other comparable courses that, or you know, skills they might have or occupations they can take up. It would be, I would say, leading as far as what you could make. Is it difficult to get the farmer to trust you? You know, you are classing their product at the end of the day. They've they've put a lot of work into it. So is it hard to build up that trust and get a farmer to take you on as their classer? I think a lot of the reassurance should come that it is a nationally set qualification and AWEX has a lot of overseeing um, responsibility in the tra- in with training organisations. So they're training to the same product. It's a national course and, of course, the Australian Wool Exchange has a code of practice, which is for the preparation of, of wool, and that's what the students are trained to. In terms of retention, do many people stick with it as a career choice? Yeah, I think that's been an issue with the wool harvesting um, industry. It is a seasonal job in many respects, and classes that are interested in travelling. So it, it probably suits a lifestyle for a certain part of your life. You know, you might be a uni student who does it in in your gap, in your holidays. You might be someone who, you know, has a gypsy lifestyle and happy to travel around. So you're going to do that for a certain amount of years. Would you maintain that? Possibly not. But, you know, there certainly are people who are professional wool classes who have done it for many, many years and stayed in the industry. But, you know, we really need to provide a work environment that is conducive to making you want to stay as well. And uh, you mentioned before that you were out earlier in an air-conditioned shed, so that's got to be uh, pretty good at this time of year in the Riverina. So are sheds becoming more updated to make them more appealing workplaces? Are you noticing improvements there in shearing sheds? Yeah, I think there has been a lot of work in that space. And obviously the shearer shortage, the wool harvesting staff shortage and the classes shortage has encouraged growers to look at their facilities and say, we need to make these appealing. We need to have somewhere to wash our hands, a toilet to go to, um, you know, air, air conditioning, icing on the cake, if you like. But basic, clean, functioning facilities are really the, the things that most teams, well, all teams require. Australian Wool Exchange Wool Classing Registrar Fiona Rawley from Cootamundra and the Riverina speaking with Cara Jeffrey there about this fee free uh, training course, wool classing course at TAFE. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, maybe get in touch with TAFE. We'll head across to the uh, Bureau of Meteorology now just to get a sense of uh, just how hot it's going to get with the weather warming up quite a bit today. I'm joined by Senior Forecaster John Fisher. Good afternoon. 
G'day, Cassie. So it's it's getting up into the 30s, but it's uh, not going to stop there by the sounds of things. What's happening weather-wise? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we've had a, a brief reprieve from the heat yesterday with uh, a change coming through uh, later Saturday after yeah, a very hot day uh, to, to begin the weekend there. But, uh, yeah, it was only one kind of cooler day, and, and now we're uh, climbing back up into the, the mid to high 30s across much of the, the state today, apart from uh, those southern coastal fringes. So, yeah, a number of locations are kind of jumping up 10 degrees compared to yesterday. Um, although it's going to take a little bit of time to, to reach that maximum. We, we've had a bit of cloud move across uh, the, the eastern parts of the, the state today, and then there has actually been one or two very light showers kind of reported out of that, you know, a few spots on the ground, nothing actually officially uh, measured in any of the, the rain gauges, but uh, under that cloud and, and also after a cooler night, it's going to take a bit of time to uh, warm up today, so probably late maximums for, for many locations. Uh, but, uh, yeah, generally dry today, apart from, yeah, as I mentioned, those uh, kind of mid-level kind of showers moving through the, the mid-north and Riverland at the moment, uh, maybe a few spots in it, and then up across some of those northern agricultural areas and, and pastoral districts, we might actually see uh, the odd shower or thunderstorm develop a, a bit later this afternoon, but uh, again, not much in the way of rainfall. So, uh, yeah, mostly dry conditions and, and hot. And then tonight, it is going to be a fairly warm night as well, so... Um, we, we do have uh, the airstream coming around to a northerly for, for Tuesday and, uh, yeah, very hot conditions ahead of a change moving across the, the state there on Tuesday. So uh, that trough uh, that, that will bring that, that change or, or cold front for southern parts uh, will we'll probably move across uh, western coastal areas fairly early on Tuesday. So we'll probably see those maximums around Sejuna down through to Port Lincoln, uh, that coastal kind of area of uh, air peninsula there only reach maybe around the 30 degree mark but to the northeast of that um, we're, we're looking at high 30s if not low 40s so very hot day uh, with a moderate northerly wind um, and that will start to push up some of those fire dangers so uh, yeah look at the moment we're kind of um, main, the current forecast is in the, the, the high range for all districts uh, or, or below but um, uh, we may see one or two districts uh, at least push into extreme tomorrow so keep an eye out for, for those uh, potential uh, fire weather warnings uh, and total fire bans later today um, and yeah look that change will move through central parts during the, the afternoon and, and uh, then push out through the, the eastern districts uh, by the evening. Uh, and uh, look, uh, we will see a fresher southerly come in, uh, but behind that change. Um, but uh, yeah, currently no no strong wind warnings uh, behind it. Uh, we're also going to see some uh, showers and thunderstorms develop near that change and ahead of it uh, during the afternoon. So uh, yeah, keep an eye out for some thunderstorms developing on that change and particularly for the eastern parts of the, the state, they could be a little bit gusty uh, given that uh, hot air mass. So, yeah, that is something to watch. Um, a lot of rainfall in, in those storms to begin with, but uh, in behind the change uh, in that cooler southwesterly airstream late Tuesday and into the early hours of Wednesday morning, uh, we'll actually see a, a band of uh, showers, uh, maybe the odd rumble of thunder in there, and, and it might even tend to kind of a, a period of light rain at times, uh, yeah, predominantly uh, in that overnight period um, 
as uh, that that uh, band moves through uh, and then contracts north uh, on Wednesday, and, and that's probably going to be yeah the, the best chance of some rainfall in for quite some time uh, for for our state. But uh, not huge totals, but generally we're saying uh, you know, most parts are going to probably see uh, somewhere between two and ten millimeters with that activity, and then maybe the odd high fall uh, with some of those thunderstorms up to around twenty millimeters, Cassie. So yeah, there is a a little bit of rain uh, coming through behind this change, and then uh, yeah, we are looking at uh, that milder southerly uh, persisting for for a number of uh, days there in the, the lead into the, the weekend. So uh, yeah, finally we do see a reprieve from you know these kind of low intensity heat wave conditions that we've been having uh, for, you know for for much of the last week. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the next high which sits south of the bite is going to be fairly slow moving. So from Thursday or even from later. Uh, Wednesday yes. right through the weekend, pretty much dry conditions and uh, yeah, southeasterly airstream with, with temperatures uh, either you know a little bit below average or, or back close to average. Cassie, well, that is uh, some good news after a bit of hot weather. There'll be a, a cool change come through. Thanks so much for that, John Fisher. Thank you. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny overnight. It's just dropping to 22 to 27 degrees, so quite warm. And then obviously the day getting hot to 37 to 42 degrees. The lower western will be sunny. And there is the chance of a thunderstorm near the Victorian border in the late afternoon. And evening overnight temperatures there dropping to the low to mid-20s. But during the day, it's going to reach around 40 degrees. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Oh, it's great to have your company today. I'm so glad you could join me. Coming up, I've got some details on the state government's plans for public housing. The benefit of buying locally is we're supporting the entirety of our community because the money stays within the community. This isn't necessarily going to cost the state government any more money, but what it will do is it'll mean that the money that the government is spending will stay in South Australia, will circulate around our communities. More on that soon. And uh, Menindia has been in the headlines due to the flooding there that's been covered fairly widely. But that water is also now making its way down the lower Darling as well. So I'll uh, have some more from people living downstream from Menindia and what they're seeing at the moment. And speaking of that, uh, there is uh, now uh, a um, moderate level and falling slowly uh, river warning. Uh, it's currently below minor in the lower lakes and Coorong. This is for the, the Murray River. So it seems like possibly the, the worst is over for much of the, the River Murray. Uh, river levels, though, uh, are going to be high for a few more weeks now. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll keep following that and I'll have more on the situation at Menindi soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Making news this hour. A core group of 30 children are reportedly running away from state homes in South Australia about 100 times a year. The Department of Child Protection has launched an initiative to stop young people in state care from fleeing. Last financial year, child protection workers reportedly made an average of 28 missing reports a day. The Australian government is still trying to determine 
happen if an Australian who was on board a plane that crashed in Nepal is among the dead. At least 68 people were killed when the Yeti Airlines aircraft nosedived into the ground in the tourist city of Pokhara in the central Nepal yesterday evening. 72 people, including four crew members, were on board the short flight which took off from Kathmandu. A search operation was called off yesterday due to low light and is resuming today. And supermarket giant Coles has reintroduced purchase limits on frozen potato products amid a national potato shortage. Bad weather has seen farmers on Australia's east coast unable to harvest their crops. The Victorian Farmers Federation says heavy rain this year has seen crops left to rot in the ground. And more news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Evelyn Lecky, there with the latest in the news headlines. Now, as I was saying just before, any new public housing in South Australia will now have to use products manufactured in this state. The new policy was announced by the state government over the weekend. It's going to mean products like bricks and concrete, steel and timber will need to come from South Australia where available. And obviously, South Australia does have quite a significant timber industry. The South Australian Forest Products Association Chief Executive Nathan Payne says he hopes that the program will eventually be expanded to all public buildings. What this means is that industry can be confident as they go to invest in the future in new technology, uh, in expanded production, that government will be backing them by buying South Australian first. This really is a wonderful step forward uh, and government should be congratulated for it. And where does most of our South Australian product actually go at the moment? Does it mostly stay in the state or mostly get exported? So so the South Australian industry processes about 35% of Australia's structural timber 60% 60% of uh, agricultural posts and poles, 25% of the nation's particle boards. So we're a big player on the national field. Really what, what we're talking about here, in, in terms of what we process in South Australia, a lot of that does go into South Australia, but some goes into the East Coast. What, what, we're, not, what we're missing out on really is competition against imported timber products. And so that's where builders choose to, to buy timber from overseas clients. What, we're, what obviously we're hoping to see is that those imports will be replaced with domestically processed timber, which will work to support you know, a, lot more, or, or a lot more jobs in the industry. We currently employ around or just over 21,000 direct and indirect jobs in South Australia, and we'd be hoping that that, is, that will grow as a consequence of this policy. And moreover, it, this is the sort of policy that can give the industry confidence to invest in expansion, expansion in processing um, structural for structural timber, but also processing for other innovative products. And are you hoping it might be expanded? Right now it's just public homes, but maybe all public buildings within the state? At the moment we're just talking about the you know, very, very significant build program that the South Australian government has for the, for the housing trust properties. We will be, uh, and we have been talking to the state government about how we can expand that to pick up, say, mass timber buildings down in Tarpina, Timberlinks through through its arm. Next Timber is is building a unique CLT GLT uh, plant that'll be producing panels that can be used in buildings up to 16 stories high. And so we want to be having a conversation with the state government about how we get that these sorts of policies embedded in their in their larger projects. We know that government procurement can lead the way. We saw that with the state government in years gone by through former Minister Patrick Common where, where he drove the, the, the commencement of, a, of five-star green staff for commercial office buildings. We think the state can do the same with mass timber buildings. This is the first step on that road. 
sometimes builders do choose to import timber to save on costs. Is this policy really in the interest of the state if it is a little bit more expensive potentially for the taxpayer? Well, I think we have to look at there's cost, but then there's total economic return. So if the government is supporting the industry, which then supports job creation, that means that, that there will be more people employed, more people who can uh, you know, put, put roofs over their heads, who can put food on the table for their kids, support their local community through sporting programs. That's the sort of the benefit of buying locally is we're supporting the entirety of our community because the money stays within the community. This isn't necessarily going to cost the state government any more money, but what it will do is it'll mean that the money that the government is spending will stay in South Australia, will circulate around our communities, which in particular, you know, when we're talking about the timber industries or the forest industries, those are regional communities that will be supported by state government buying locally. Nathan Payne from the South Australian Forest Products Association speaking to Elsie Adamo about that new policy from the state government about uh, products coming from South Australia where available in uh, new public housing builds. So uh, I'm sure there's uh, it's been welcomed by a lot of the uh, timber producers in this state. Now, water still continues to, to dominate a lot of the conversation. Susan Lee is the member for Farrah. She spent time in far west New South Wales last week where obviously the floods were high on the agenda and while the Menindee Lakes aren't actually in her electorate, the water is going to travel down the uh, Lower Darling into towns like Pincary and Wentworth, which are. So uh, she went there to have a bit of a look around. I've been quite alarmed at reports of how the flooding impacted both Menindee and the Lower Darling and the communities there are very unhappy. In their view, there was ample evidence when the flood water was measured at Burke, and obviously that takes several weeks to come down to Menindee, that the problem was coming and it wouldn't be easily resolved without significant intervention around managing the regulators and the lake system. Um, That was done differently from how people believe it should have been, and I think that that needs a careful review and That is something that we owe the communities, that the um, managers, those who run the agencies in Sydney, which is a long, long way from Menindee, actually owe that community. And um, I was quite concerned when I heard the stories. And already we've seen significant damage to farmland and we've seen roads that have been completely washed away as a result of this sudden flooding that came really um, without warning. I've been told that the Bush Telegraph is essentially what landholders on the Lower Darling are relying on for accurate information about how much the water is rising upstream. Is that acceptable in this day and age? It's never acceptable when agencies that are a long way away from what's happening on the ground do not listen to the expertise of those who live in an area. Because in my experience, they're nearly always right. And I have to pay tribute to the Wentworth Shire. They have done an amazing job in managing both the flood event, repairing roads, getting out there 24-7, their workforce, their management, their councillors. Um, you know, I've heard such positive feedback about Wentworth and I think that we really need to pay tribute to them as local managers. And of course, they live in the area and they listen to the people who live on the river. We absolutely need the agencies that are based in Sydney with staff that are looking at maps and models and have an approach that just doesn't seem to be able to um, appreciate sometimes the urgency. They must listen to the people who live in the area. They must listen to their wisdom. 
as a federal member, how much of an influence can you have on things that are managed at a state level? Well, I know that the state government will always review what's happened during an emergency and this will be no different. So it's important that in that review or even separately, they look at the management of what happened at Menindee and the Menindee Lake system during this flood. And look, there's many themes for them to pick up, including the rebuilding of levees and the relationship between emergency services. And that will form part of uh, doing things differently in the future, I'm sure. Susan Lee, the member for Farrah, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth there. And uh, the Bureau of Meteorology says the moderate flood level may be exceeded at Pooncarry this week and could reach about eight metres in January, uh, late in January. Uh, That's moderate flooding. The Darling River at Bertundi may exceed the major flood level there. Uh, That's 7.7 metres around late January as well and could actually get up to 8.4 metres in early February with major flooding. Kelly Hollingworth caught up with Nerida Healy from Court Noreen Station between Menindee and Pooncarry to find out how things are looking at her place. It's probably risen um, about six inches in the last day or so. It was already over the bank um, and in lots of creeks and that, but now it's really sort of starting to fill up and we're um, making the decisions now to um, what we need to build some banks around to protect. Are you getting a accurate or clear understanding of how much water you you think might hit your property? I think we've all sort of reverted back to the um, old-fashioned way of a stick in the ground and ringing the neighbours, you know, a little bit further upstream uh, and watching what their sticks, what the measurements on their stick is doing um, to try and work out what's going to happen like for you in the next couple of days. You have made the decision to send 700 sheep to Meatworks. What's led to that decision? With the river um, coming up a bit quick and things like that, we're just running out of room um, on our property. So we spoke to the agent. He sort of suggested that we hold on to them until the end of Feb would be um, better prices and a better um, kill spot. But unfortunately, like we just don't have the space if the river comes up like it's supposed to so we needed to shift them out um, like this week we didn't have an option. I think the biggest thing is just the unknown and perhaps the lack of um, the lack of information that's coming out so you're having to make these decisions on a bit of guesswork and things like that so um, so that's that's probably the frustrating thing is that there's really no sort of clear indication of what's happening It's a bit of guesswork and a bit of doing what you can now just to save yourself, like, in the end. Nerida Healy speaking with Kelly Hollingworth there. The South West Water Users Group is calling for a thorough review of the flooding. While Water New South Wales says the flood was unavoidable, the South West Water Users Group chairman, Howard Jones, disagrees. First of all, this is not a big flood. There have been much bigger floods uh, above Burke uh, than this one. Uh, this one's a big flood because of total utter mismanagement by water in New South Wales. There's no other way to describe it. The decision-making process from April through to now has been one of uh, sitting on their hands, taking poor advice and not listening to locals. I mean, the locals at Benindi, Graham McCrabb, probably gives more accurate information on water heights and, and, and predictability of, of where the water's going to go to the point that most of the people downstream of him are taking more notice of him than, the, than they are... Have, with the very rare reports from the bomb or SES or from New South Wales water, which usually are inaccurate 
uh, and do not portray the situation as it is. People on the rivers, particularly on the Darling from, from the top to the bottom, have a history of knowledge of what happens in any given flood. And when you get a situation like this where you have the unknown, which is what are they going to do when the Menindee Lakes over, overcharge and they have to, their forced release, which they have in this case, which they consistently say they didn't have to do because there was enough airspace, well, that lie has come to fruition. They double the output from, from the main weir uh, virtually overnight, putting people in uh, houses in jeopardy, putting properties in jeopardy, causing anguish and turmoil all the way through, through their own ignorance and inability to, to carry out their job. What are you hoping changes so this isn't repeated again in the future? I would like to see the state governments and the local governments get together at the end of this, this, this event, whether it be the Darling one or the Murray one, and do a debrief, a proper debrief with, with professional people um, sitting at the table, drawing the information out of where the failures were, and there are plenty of them to draw out. That would, that would give us, because if I take the Wentworth Shire Council and the people at Menindee, there's been a lot of documentation of this chain of events so that they know now what to expect in any given circumstance. That is invaluable stuff taking us forward. So we need to have that roundtable chat amongst all the authorities to see where the buck stops, and no-one's got any idea. Supposedly it's the SES, but every time you put some pressure on them, they say it's the bomb, and then put pressure on the bomb, they say it's New South Wales water, and around the table you go again. So this is where people have lost complete confidence in the process or the hierarchy of management in the emergency services, and I hate knocking uh, volunteer staff, but the reality is that some people are failing to carry out their tasks, and the communities are bearing the brunt of that. Southwest Water Users Group Chairman Howard Jones speaking there. Now, Water New South Wales has been uh, defending their position on this. You might have heard some of the, the comments they've made. Uh, uh, Tony Webber to, has uh, spoken about the uh, need to install water meters, additional water meters to help predict the next flood, but he says predicting an event like this one is extremely difficult. The best uh, advice from, from previous experience and, and previous flooding, of course, is that what can be expected in the Menindee Lakes is typically very similar to the peak that's experienced at Wilcannia upstream. What was experienced at Wilcannia was about 45 gigalitres a day, of a, a huge amount of water. Uh, what started arriving into the lakes was double, double that volume, where we saw huge amounts of water from the floodplain returning or, or at least joining up with the Darling River flood um, to, to, to dramatically increase the forecast modelling. That occurred overnight Christmas Eve. Um, so I, I understand that, you know, that, that, was this, you know, that, that was, wasn't, wasn't forecast, wasn't predicted by any of the agencies or expected by the community. Um, but the SES certainly did an excellent job in, 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 in getting around, as they have done for many months in that community, uh, and helping them deal with what was really an unavoidable flood event. Water New South Wales spokesperson Tony Webber speaking there and we'll keep following this water as it heads down the Darling Barker River. It is 13 minutes to one. January 26, the ABC gives you the best seats in the house for Australia Day Live to honour country and celebrate the Australian spirit. 
a fireworks and maritime show on the harbour with performances from some of our biggest stars. Casey Donovan, Dami Im, Christine Arnoux, William Barton, Isaiah Firebrace and lots more. Thank you so much. A concert for the country you won't want to miss. Australia Day Live, Thursday night, January 26 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. A first-time West Australian farmer in Franklin River, about 150 kilometres northwest of Albany, has made it through his first 12 months on the property and is expecting a record tonnage. Now, Grant Bernhardt hails from the Clare Valley here in South Australia and has set a high bar for his future years in the state as the new farm manager for Westfield Station. Although the tonnage is looking great, he doesn't actually expect to be finished harvest until February. Now, he says, well, Franklin River is typically a late season region rarely is harvest this late. This is probably historically the latest harvest for this area. Traditionally we've probably normally finished around sort of uh, middle of January at the latest so this year it'll it'll run into February easily which is quite unusual and that's just a seasonal thing it's just a phenomenon this year really just just the way the weather's been so mild and and just a gentle finish which is just incredible really it's something I've, I've not experienced and I don't think, you know, talking to some of the other older guys around the area, it's, it's, it's a first for them as well. So it's quite exciting, really, to, to be able to uh, produce a crop and, and have a finish with yields like we have is, is un- unbelievable. Even though harvest is looking pretty late, how do you feel about this, the harvest in the season? Uh, really positive yeah I think across the board yeah the harvest for us being so late has yeah, just the oil content in our canola the yield in our canola barley and wheat the same yeah it couldn't be couldn't be better really. Are you looking at a record year here? Absolutely yeah so last year was it was a record for Franklin River grazing and we'd be across the board the wheat canola and barley would be a ton to the hectare heavier this year than last year so yeah we'll, we'll break those records easily. That's huge and how many years have you been here? So I've been here almost 12 months to the day so we took over the management here in December last year, middle of December last year so yeah this is our full first full circuit where we've uh, done seeding and, and our first full harvest coming off and yeah pretty pretty excited about the result. For a first year what a, what a result. Yeah, I've uh, set the bar pretty high. <laughs> I'll see if I can keep that up. <laughs> so before farming in Franklin River, what were you doing? Uh, so I was managing an export hay business in, uh, in further north in the state. and then uh, But previous to that, I was uh, a farmer in South Australia. So originally from the Clare Valley in South Australia. How does this season in Franklin River, I mean, you did say it was a record, but how does it compare to farming in South Australia? Yeah, so the the systems are very similar, but this country down here is probably very similar to where we were in South Australia as far as climate wise. A little bit higher rainfall here, but uh, yeah, by far this is this is the the heaviest crops I've been able to produce in in sort of 25 odd years, I reckon for sure. And we're standing in your paddock now, and there is uh, quite a bit of canola still here yet to come off. How far into the program are you with harvest? Yeah, so we're literally about a third of the way through our canola program. So we put in about 1,100 hectares of canola this year. Yeah, so we're, we're about a third of the way as we stand today. So we've got, got a fair way to go, <laughs> keeping my eye on the sky. <laughs> How do older farmers around this area feel about you walking into a record year? <laughs> I actually, I haven't, had, I haven't had time to go in and catch up with too many of them, but no doubt I'm probably getting a ribbing somewhere. 
that's for sure. The new gig on the block. So, uh, well, yeah, like I said, I'll set the bar. I hope I don't fall over it. <laughs> oh, it's a pretty remarkable season. That was Grant Bernhardt, farm manager from Westfield Station in Franklin River, speaking with Sophie Johnson. And there's more on that online uh, at abc.net.au slash rural. Finally today, more than 1,200 Female beekeepers successfully set a record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours. <laughs> Very niche there. And it was followed by a second world record at a live event in southern Tasmania with beekeepers travelling from around the country to, adjoin, to join Anita Long and Jenny McLeod from Sister Hives Australia. Co-organiser Jenny McLeod spoke with Fiona Breen about the weekend of record-breaking female beekeeping. It was so exciting to see photos going up, not just from Tasmania, not just from Australia, but from at least 25 countries from all over the world. It's just been astonishing. So this was an attempt to break a record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours. How did it all work for you? Um, It's been quite incredible. We've been working with an accredited um, international or based in Tasmania, but working all over the world, uh, world record company, Extreme Excellence. Uh, And we have found working with them to be magnificent. They've allowed us to set a world record with them. And through that process, we've been able to change the face of beekeeping in one big loud clap. So by that, you mean just having so many women involved in beekeeping? Absolutely. And I think there's always been women beekeepers. It's not a mystery to anyone that's a beekeeper. We know that we're out there and we know that we're doing this. I think that we're not always visible in beekeeping. It has been traditionally a male-led industry, um, but this was an opportunity for us to say, come on, women, make yourself visible. We want to see you. We want to see you beekeeping. We want to see what you do. Um, And that's what this world record has allowed us to do. Where were some of these women? Oh, goodness. We had women from Mongolia, uh, Moldova, Japan, all over the US, all over the UK, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and uh, one woman from Ukraine who's also going to be part of our documentary. Now, you had to have 1,200 female beekeepers to successfully set this record. Uh, How many do you think you got in the end? So this record's actually never been set before, Fee. So this is a first time. Um, we, were t- we were aiming to get 1,000 women registered. We've had well over that amount registered. I think it's creeping up to more like 1,500 or 1,600 women registered. And what happened with the digital event is that the posts went up and how that, those impacts were tracked through an impact, like a system and um, online. And we were able to see how many people we reached over that 24-hour period, which was absolutely mind-blowing um, for us. 2.8 million people were impacted by the posts that women had shared all over the world. Tell me about the woman in the Ukraine. That must have been mm. tricky for her. And how did she sort of get onto this? It's amazing. I think... Talking to her, we we did get a chance to meet with her on Zoom and and many other participants just before the event. And she was telling us she was listening to bombs falling around her apiary while she'd get up the next day and go and check her bees. But she was also a researcher building uh, and researching how to make a robotic hive, which just sounds so fascinating. And for us sitting here in Australia, you know, we're so sheltered from all of those 
tensions that are happening in the world and to hear her carrying on with her life like normal was just, you know, it's hard to imagine. So she got a photo to you? She did. She certainly did. Wow. Wow. And did she sort of mention what it was like beekeeping there at the moment? Look, she didn't talk so much about that. And I think she spoke a lot about building the robotic hive. And I think I can only imagine, or I can't really imagine, but I think trying to have a normal life uh, while you're in a war zone, it'd be the most traumatic experience I I can't imagine. We we didn't ask her too much about what it was like. Um, Just listen to her research. Did any of the other... uh participants from around the world strike you as being unusual or had a, a, an interesting story or anything? Oh, so many of them. I think of one woman in Pakistan. So her and her daughter set up the only, the first and only mother-daughter beekeeping business in Pakistan. And she shared the most magnificent photographs of, of mountains and ice and snow and, you know, both of them down the bottom of a stony gully with these huge beehives. And it was just wonderful to see that there were people everywhere. It's hard to express just how overwhelming it was. And I was saying yesterday, I think it's going to take a lot of time for me personally to um, digest how I feel about the experience and the impact that it's actually have, because it's not just going to stop now, it's going to keep going. Now, also, you also were involved in another world record. Mm. Tell me Mm. a a little bit about that one and how did that go? So it's interesting, Fee. So the digital world record and the in-person world record, not only were they the first of their kind in the world, they were also the, the first to ever happen two at the same time. So it, it's been an extraordinarily um, huge organising feat for everybody behind the scenes. Now, the in-person world record happened on Saturday uh, at Ripple Farm Regenerative Hub. And we had we had over 116 women registered, but because of the heat, we ended up with over 70 women uh, joining us for the event, which is still a world record and it's absolutely magnificent. And of those 70 women, we had about eight or nine flying in from interstate. So we had Queensland represented, we had New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia represented at that in-person event co-organiser of two world record attempts on the weekend, Jenny McLeod, chatting with Fiona Breen there. That is rather specific, though. The most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours, but they were successful with 1,200 female beekeepers doing just that. Now, that's about all I have time for, but I haven't had a chance to catch up with Sonia Feldoff because I went on holidays right when she came back. Hi, Sonia. <laughs> Hello, Cassie. It's great. The whole gang's back together Yeah, uh, from today, which is really up. nice. Yeah, indeed. Now, you're going to meet a Mount Barker father who sadly in the last fortnight has lost his son, Jet. Um, He is a man who was being told at the time as his son was going through palliative care that he needed to get out of his house, find another rental home. But finding an accessible home for his son, Jet, who is in a wheelchair, was pretty difficult. Gosh, what a story. Keep Mm. listening to that. Um, And what else? And parking fines. How often have you had a parking fine that's not your fault? If you want to pass the buck, it's all going to get a lot easier soon as they streamline the option for that. The bad news is it's not about speeding. You know how you have to get a statutory declaration? If you want to contest it. If you want to contest or say it wasn't me driving, even Uh though I've got the the fine, the speeding fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, You've had to do that with parking fines too. I've never actually contested anything. 
Never. Never. There you go. <laughs> I just got my punishment. So, so I'll learn something. Maybe I can we'll get find some out tips for what to do. More to come on your ABC local radio. That's it all. It only works if you didn't actually do it, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe that's why I haven't tried. More to come, though, with Sonia. It's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.